take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26. We are back in 1 Samuel after our essential study. Um, and if your child is in fourth or fifth grade and would like to go to Kids Bridge, this is where they learn the vital importance of worship in the life of the church. We want to be a congregation that our worship, you look around and you can see uh, all ages uh, present, and uh, we want kids seeing their parents worship Jesus Christ. We want students looking across the room and seeing uh, elderly folks who um, are struggling just to get here some Sundays, worshiping Christ. And so uh, that is what Kids Bridge is all about. It's a it's a bridge into the worship service. And so if your child is in fourth or fifth grade, you can meet uh, them in the back at this time. I would remind you, 1 Samuel begins with Israel in just a horrible cycle of sin. And the book begins with who is going to lead the people of Israel? Uh, what kind of leader is going to rise to the occasion? You have priests that are corrupt. You have prophets that are corrupt. And God raises up a prophet named Samuel... And Samuel's job is to lead the people to the king they need. But the people continue to rebel. They don't want the king they need. They want a king for themselves. They want to pick the king. They want a trophy king, a king to put on the billboards, a champion like the Philistine kings that they can, that they can boast in. And so God turns them over to their sin and gives them Saul as king. But Saul's not the king that God chooses for his people. No, the king that God chooses is a little harp-playing shepherd boy out in the small place of Bethlehem that nobody would have picked as king. And yet God anoints David with his spirit. And even then, as we see the king we need, it, it's almost as if God says, hold on, David, because I want to display Israel's sin in a way that makes sense. Because even today, we live in a world where sin, Satan, and death rule and reign. They, they are wreaking havoc. And yet, we've seen God's anointed king, another shepherd, carpenter, from Bethlehem. And while he has come and he has defeated the giant of sin and death, we live in a time where God says, hold on, wait, wait a little bit. I want, I, want, I want you to long for this king to come rule and reign. And while we live in these overlapping kingdoms, God calls us to live by mercy and that's what we're going to see today in 1 Samuel. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, 1 Samuel chapter 26. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son, David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and I have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, 
Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Oh God, as we see these two names in your word, Saul and David, we are reminded that we live in the middle of two kingdoms that are waging war against one another. We live in a world that is ruled with sin a, a world where death is wreaking havoc, a world where Satan seems to have his way, and yet we know the anointed king has come. We know the anointed king is coming, a king full of faithfulness, a king full of righteousness, one who will rule and reign forever, and as we wait on him to come, God, we war. We fight, we do battle, not with swords and spears, but with crosses. God, teach us today what it means to fight with mercy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. What now? This was a common sound that I heard from the other end of the phone from my dad between the ages of 16 and 18. What now? When, when I got my driver's license, I was a very good driver. Just want to say that. But I was a very aggressive driver, and I like to drive, and I like to drive fast, and that led to speeding tickets, and that led to a lot of dented bumpers and dented fenders. And so much so that my parents hated to hear from me over the weekend. They, they kind of wanted me just to leave on Friday and not hear anything from me from the rest of the weekend. And my dad would tell you, he said, I could tell by the way the phone rang what was about to be said. I'd gotten pulled over. My truck was in a ditch. There was something where he needed to come out and help me. And he said, if I wasn't worried about you being injured, I would have just stopped answering the phone. And, and he could just tell by my sound from the other end of the line, Dad. And it would be, okay, what now? Or, hey, Dad, I've got to show you something. What have you done now? We would walk out and look and inspect the truck, and then we would get the truck fixed, and we would pay for the speeding tickets, only to do it again, it seemed like, the next weekend. And yet, this is the experience that I have now as a dad. When I get that text from Danae, call me when you can. That is never anything other than I have to talk to you about something one of our kids have done. When I get that text from a coach or a teacher, call me when you can. It's always, what have they done now? What now? What's going on? And we all have those same experiences. Think about the name when it pops up on your phone and your heart sinks and you begin to say, what now? 
Think, think about that text. Hey, can we get together and meet? Can we talk? And you're, you're, you're thinking, what now? You're, you're scrolling through social media and, and you see some sort of disguised post from a friend. They're venting about something, but they won't come out and say it. And you see their name and you're putting things together and you're thinking, what have they done now? And our hearts sink. But when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 26, just the first few words here, our hearts sink. When, when we see the term Ziphites and when we see the term Gibeah, that sets the context for this chapter. We read those words and our hearts sink and we begin to think, what now? Remember the Ziphites back in chapter 22. They are the ones who ratted David out to Saul. Saul is raging against David. He doesn't like the feeling that there is anointed king and this kingdom's being taken from him. And he is lashing out at David. And he is, he is trying to kill him. And the Ziphites are the ones who rat David out. And we read that, we, we read the word Ziphites here, and we begin to think, what are they going to do now? And remember Gibeah, this is a place where Saul built a monument to himself, where people came and, and literally worshipped Saul. They revered Saul. And so we see just the first part of this chapter, and we're thinking, this is a here-we-go-again moment between Saul and David. And that's exactly what happens. Notice the Ziphites say, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jessamine? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph. And notice, with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And we're thinking, we've seen this before. David is ratted out and Saul is going to pursue him. But notice the intensity. He gathers up 3,000 men. And he's going to head out into this wilderness. And when you think wilderness, don't think barren. This would have been a rocky caves everywhere, sort of a desert road that they're going to head down. And, and can you imagine Saul heading out to this place with 3,000 men? He would have been in plain sight. He's not trying to be hidden. As David hides away, here comes Saul and the armies of Israel after David. And notice Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah which is beside the road of East Jessamine. Again, he's right out in the middle of the open. Everyone can see him. But David remained in the wilderness. He remained hidden. And when he saw that Saul came into the wilderness, David sent spies and learned Saul had indeed came. And we, we understand this is the same thing we've seen just a few chapters earlier. And, and what is going to happen here? This is the same old story. And, and, and remember back in chapters 22 and 23, when Saul enters the cave and he takes a nap and David finds him there. And instead of slicing his throat, David sneaks up and cuts his robe. And then he shows it to everybody. See, Saul, I could have killed you. I was merciful to you. 
And they seem to make amends, and Saul is, uh, uh, he's fearful in those moments, but he seems to repent, and he goes his own way. But here we are again. And, and we see from those chapters, David's mercy accomplished nothing with Saul. It did nothing for him. He's still chasing him out into the wilderness. And we have to remember, Saul is a picture of Israel in continual sin. That's why God raised up Saul. To say to his people, this is what you look like. This is what your sin looks like. You repent and you turn to me and I have mercy. And guess what you do again? You sin, you repent, you turn to me and I show you mercy. And it's what now, Saul? Here we go again, Saul. But isn't Saul a picture of you and I? Is it not just Israel, but you and I? Is he not a picture of the sin we see in the mirror day after day? When we think yesterday, it was rough, I sinned, I repented, I embraced the gospel, I read the word of God that God forgives me, that I'm secure in the righteousness of Christ, that Jesus died for that sin, and we receive that mercy. And then the next day, It's almost as if our desires get stronger sometimes. As as we understand what is at stake and we begin to see ourselves more clearly and we begin to look in our hearts more vividly and we see ourselves go to war for what we really want, what we really have to have. And what God is saying to us here through King David is what you need is a king Who's not going to say, what now, Saul? What now, Jeremy? But you need a king who is going to give mercy after mercy after mercy. That is our only hope. And notice verse 5. This is exactly what David does. First of all, we see David rose. And we're beginning to think, all right. Little shepherd boy with a sword. Killed a giant. He's going to put an end to Saul. He's heard that he's tired of it. So he gets up intently and he comes to the place where Saul encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And we see here, in some sense, David has been replaced by this guy. This was Saul's cousin. He's replaced Saul, he's replaced David and Jonathan at this point. He's sort of the top secret service agent who's there to protect Saul. And he's lying directly beside Saul in the encampment. But notice while the army was encamped around him, verse 6, then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, now this is the priest that eventually Saul is going to wipe out the priesthood, and to Joab, the brother of Abishai, the son of Zerah. Now, this guy, eventually, Abishai, will be a guy who kills a Philistine giant himself. He is a fierce warrior, and he is David's right-hand guy. He, in 2 Samuel, he himself will destroy 300 Philistines. This is the guy you want in the foxhole with you. He is ready for battle, and he is bloodthirsty. But notice, Abishai says, I'll go down. I have no problem going down to fight. That's what I live to do. And then verse 7, David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment. Now, this is important. Saul is in the middle of this war camp. 
And David and Abishai, they make their way through all the troops. Remember, 3,000 soldiers past the secret servicemen. It passed Abinar. And they find Saul sleeping in the middle of everyone. And notice what is there. The spear. The spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abinar and the army lay around him. They make their way through all of the soldiers, through all of this security. And there is Saul with the spear. Now remember the spear? This spear has been hurled at David some five times now. Saul just gets angry and throws spears at him. They've been hanging in walls. They've been sent out into the fields. He has tried to kill David with this spear over and over and over again. And there it is at his head. Everyone's in a deep sleep. There's the spear. There's Saul. And it's just a few inches from his head. It would not take much. Notice verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, This is the Lord's will for your life. God has given you your enemy into your hand. And he says, I don't even want you to do it, David. I don't even want you to become unclean with this act. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Just let me do it. Give me one shot. Give me one shot to take this spear. By the way, the spear he's tried to kill you with over and over again. Let me notice the text. Pin him to the ground. Let me staple him to the dirt. And it will only take one shot. Notice David's response. He said to Abishai, do not destroy him. And immediately we go, David, why did you, get, why did you do this? Why did you get up? Move through all the soldiers. Make your way through the secret service. Why did you get into the middle of everyone just to stand here over Saul who's deep in sleep with the spear right there? God has done this. Why would you say do not destroy him? Is this not what God has done for you? Has God not put you in this place? We would almost say it would be disobedience for you not to spear him in the head. Notice. He says, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Let's remember, Abishai, who made Saul king? It is the Lord. And it is the Lord who anointed him for a time with the Spirit. And you cannot kill the Lord's anointed. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or, or, or his day will come to die and he'll go down into battle and perish. He says, God's going to take care of this. And David has learned this story after story in this book that God defeats his enemies. Remember the giant? God did that for David. Remember the last chapter, Nabal? He was struck dead. God did it. And God has placed him as king over Israel, granite, to punish Israel. But it is the Lord's doing. Verse 11. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He is trusting in the sovereign purposes of God. And then he says, but take now the spear at his head and the jar of water and let's go. And we ask, why all that to do? Why didn't you just stay at home, David? Why did you risk your life? Why did you risk this warrior's life? Why did you stand there only to walk away with the spear and the jug of water? Why? Why would God put you there? And we see God's sovereign purpose 
in displaying mercy. The reason God allowed David to move through the camp and stand over Saul only to take the spear and go the other way is to display amazing mercy. And it's the same reason he's put you in certain situations in your life. For the sole purpose to show mercy. Some of you are asking, why in the world am I in this relationship? You're thinking about that unbelieving spouse who just can't get it right. Week after week, they don't know how to love. They don't know how to forgive. They don't understand the gospel. And you're thinking, God, why am I here? To walk away with the spear and not thrust them through the head? To show mercy. That's why God's placed you there, to be merciful. Some of you are thinking about those birth parents who ruined the lives of the kids you love so much and you are caring for and you long for justice and you long for care and you long for the right thing to happen and it should happen. But is that the only reason God has placed you there? To tell those people you get what you get? How about stepping into that relationship as God's sovereign purpose to show mercy, to pray, to be kind, Is that not why God has placed you there? Some of you are here today and you're thinking about that loud and proud LGBT member who's failing out of class and you're looking over there with glee at their demise. You're happy that they're failing. Is that why God put you in their life? Or would it be to show mercy? Would it be to show kindness? Because that's what they need is the gospel. You're thinking about that friend that you have warned over and over and over again. They're not a Christian and they keep chasing sin after sin after sin. And you keep warning them and they keep thinking you're a moron Christian. And you keep sharing the gospel with them. And they just keep on and on chasing sin. And you're seeing in their life it's not satisfying them. And they keep turning to you over and over again. And you want to say, what now? I told you so. How about being merciful? How about pointing them to a God who doesn't say what now, but shows mercy? How about being like David and walking away with the spear? Maybe God's put you in their life that you would not spear them with condemnation, but you would display his mercy. Notice verse 12. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. And no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. And they were all asleep because of a deep sleep from the Lord. It had fallen upon them. You see, when we read this, we think David must have been some kind of ninja. I mean, this is Ocean's Eleven spy stuff. This is amazing that they got in there. How did they do that? They must have been, you know, uh, zip lining over the top and falling inside the tent. And, you know, they're so quiet. That's not what's going on. Notice, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on everyone. God put them all to sleep. Verse 13, then David went over to the other side and he stood afar off on top of the mountain with a great space between them all. And so David gets out. And he gets out with the spear and he gets out with the water. Now, this is just more symbolism that the spirit has left Saul, that the kingdom has been removed from Saul and given to 
to David. We saw earlier that Saul's robe has been torn. It has been cut. Now the spear has been taken away. This symbol of power. The, the water has been stolen. This symbol of life. The, the spear that was at his head, which symbolizes authority. All of that has been taken from Saul and given to David. In verse 14. And David called to the army and to Abner and the son of Ner. And he said, will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Now here's the picture. David gets out of the tent. He goes across the street, back up a hill. These big streets, big hills. He's on the other side of the hill. And he looks over at Abner and he says, yoo-hoo. I got the spear and I got the water. Now, how did I get that? How'd this happen, Abner? You're such a great warrior. You're so mighty. You're so awesome. Look, these two little rogue warriors snuck in and got it all. Who who do you think you are? Notice, who is like you in Israel? This is sarcasm. Remember, Abner has taken the place of David... Abner has taken the place of Jonathan, and he says, okay, now you're the big man on campus, but now you look like a fool. Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord King? For one of the people, now notice the way he describes himself in Abishai, one of the people. We're nobodies. We're out here with these rejects. We're we're out here in the wilderness. You got your 3,000 soldiers And we done snuck in and we done stole the spear. Just one of the people. Verse 16. This thing that you have done is not good. This is going to be hilarious when you try to explain this to Saul and everybody else. And as the Lord lives, you deserve to die. You took a vow before the Lord to protect the king, but you can't do it. Because you have not kept watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed, the one God has designed to be king for this time, you have failed at your job. And now we see where the king's spear and the jar of water is that was at his head. Now, what David is displaying on this other mountain as he looks across at Abner is you fall short of my glory. Remember all the years that I took care of the king? Remember me? I was his armor bearer. Remember all the Philistines that I killed? Remember me playing the harp and soothing the king? You you can't do your job, Abner. You fall short of my glory. God is teaching us here that that's why we need mercy. Abner, whether he knew it or not, just tasted the mercy of David. Saul, who's dead asleep, just tasted the mercy of David. And they needed the mercy of David because they couldn't protect themselves. And how often has God taught you the same lesson? How often have you got to the other side of a life event and God is standing there saying, if I had not intervened, you would have killed yourself because you ain't strong enough. All the wisdom you have, all the might you have, all the influence you have, everything that you think you are, if I had not protected you, you would have died. You would have been more miserable than you already are. All that health and wealth that you think makes you secure, all all of those things that you hoard to yourself that give you identity, 
All of the security in the nice, perfect life that you planned for yourself to get the spouse, to get the degree, to have the kids, to have the money, and then drift off into retirement. Often, God steps into our life, and we get on the other side of things, and God says, if I hadn't took some of those things away from you, you wouldn't have trusted me. You would not have looked to me as king. Here's the little playbook you have for your life. Here's your security. Here's your bank statements. Here's your goals. Here's your ambitions. I had to take some of that away from you so you would see you fall short of my glory. And I'm the king you need. I'm the only one you can trust in. If the raise was a little bit more, if the diagnosis was clean, if the kids were perfect and happy all the time, would you trust in the Lord? And so often God takes those spears and jugs of water and says, you need to look to me, not your spears and not your water. I'm the one you need to trust in. And some of you are here today and you were trusting in all of your religious achievement. You were born and raised in the church. And when someone asks you, do you have any spiritual beliefs? If you're going to heaven or heaven, that, uh, heaven or hell, heaven or hell, your response wasn't because you believe in Jesus. It was, I was born and raised in the church. And God had to rip that out of your hands. And you had to understand that your righteousness before him is filthy toilet paper. And there was a day when God speared your wicked heart to death with the cross of Jesus Christ. And you clung to him as your only hope. And now you look across the street, across the road, at Golgotha, that hill far away. And you see Jesus standing with your spear and your water as your only hope. Because you fall short of his glory. That's the lesson we're learning here. And notice Saul recognized David's voice. Saul is still stammering around. He's sleepy. His hair's messed up. He comes out of the tent and says, Is that David? We've been looking everywhere for you. I got 3,000 men out here in the middle of the road looking for you. And there you are on that hill. How did we miss him? Is that your voice? Notice my son David. Because he realizes he's in trouble again. And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? You imagine being David, served Saul so faithfully. Jonathan's his best friend. He was his armor bearer. He's a great warrior. Now he's his son-in-law. Why are you chasing me down in the wilderness? Notice, for what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Verse 19. Now therefore let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. Now at this point, David begins to talk foolishness. He begins to say, Saul, let's hash this out. From my mountain to your mountain, let's talk. If God has turned you against me because I have sinned, then let's get together and have an offering. What he's saying to Saul is, if this is really about the Lord, then let's work it out. And if I'm, if I'm in sin, I'll put up an offering for this. But we know how silly that is. 
That's not what's going on. He's pursuing David for Saul, not for the Lord. And then he says, but if it is the men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. To go, they're saying to me, go and serve other gods. He says, Saul, if it's you, let's work it out. But if it's the people of Israel and they're just trying to push me out of the land so that I'll go off and be a pagan Philistine, then that's some evangelistic program you got going over there, going on over there in Israel. Really? Is that what this is about? Just trying to send me to a foreign land? That makes no sense, Saul. Notice verse 20. Now for, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. David vows, and this is going to be really important in the next chapter, I ain't leaving. I, I am the Lord's chosen king, and I'm staying. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. He says, Saul, do you know how stupid you are? You're chasing me like this little flea you can't even see. That's who I am. I'm a nobody now. I'm out here with 600 ragtag reject soldiers. And you got the armies of Israel. You look like someone chasing a flea or a partridge, which is a bird. I thought all week, what does that mean? He's chasing a bowl of soup out in the mountains. No, it's a bird. It's a bird. It's a little insignificant you get everybody's this sort of laughter. You can laugh here. A little insignificant bird. Chasing a little bird out in the wilderness. Now these birds, I learned as I, anything, I started reading about these kind of birds. And they camouflage themselves. You can't even see them. And his point is, you just look like a moron, Saul. Chasing something you can't even see or find out in the wilderness. And we see here with Saul what we see in our own lives. It's a good principle for life. Sin makes you stupid. Period. Sin makes you stupid. Because sin is trying to get what you want. And the more you chase what you want, at all costs, you just get more and more stupid. You get stupider. And you check. Some of you didn't get that. But, but you chase sin. And you just become more illogical. And your emotions drive everything. And, and you become this illogical mess. Sin makes you stupid. And that's who Saul is. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Again, Saul. Been through this before. It's happened a few chapters ago. Return my son David, for I will no more do him harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and made a great mistake. And we, we see some of Saul's repentance sort of bubble up again. But we're, we've learned this is self-centered repentance. Verse 22. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. Can you imagine the guy who gets that job? The guy who just snuck in and stole the spear and water? The giant slayer? I mean, Saul... You, you have a head of a giant on your trophy case at home that this guy brought to you. He sawed his neck off. And you want me to go over and get a spear from him? 
But David wants an open display of mercy. He wants everyone to see it. Verse 23. This is why the Lord rewards to every man his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David sees himself as doing the right thing. This was an act of faith, not killing the Lord, not killing Saul. This was a test that the Lord has put him through to not disobey the word and kill the Lord's anointed. And then he says, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and he will deliver me out of tribulation. Now, through that whole section, we see these words, reward, righteousness, faithfulness. And then we see this word, precious. And the word precious in this section can also mean choice. Saul, for a time, was the Lord's choice. And David recognized him as precious, as the Lord's choice. And he says, because I recognized him as the Lord's choice, the Lord will reward me as the Lord's choice and deliver me the same way I delivered you. The Lord will repay what happens here as he has chosen me as his as, as the king of Israel, he will deliver me as the king of Israel. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son. You will do many things and succeed in them. And yes, he will. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. And we read this and we go, that's so frustrating. No. Saul got away again. If I'm telling this story, then we go into Saul's tent and there is Abishai saying, let me do it, David. And if I'm writing the story, David says, absolutely not. And he grabs the spear, two hands, through his head. Brains everywhere. Now, from that moment on, nobody's going to have a problem with that story. If that was how the story ended here today, you would go, yep, that's right. That's what should happen. David's the king. Or, or, or when the guy walks across the road up the hill to go get here, if I'm writing the story, David grabs him and says, ha, I tricked you, and stabs him in the throat. I'm not that demented. <laughs> I've just read a lot of Bible stories over the years, and these things happen in the Bible. But, but if I'm writing the story, that's what happens. But what is God teaching us here? God's teaching me that I fight like a loser. That's what God's teaching me. When I think about how I would fight, I would fight like a loser. That's how losers fight. God will judge Saul by taking away the kingdom. He's losing the kingdom. So how's he fighting? He's raging. He's throwing spears. David will get the kingdom in the end. So how's David fighting? With mercy. David can fight with mercy because he has nothing to lose. But so often we fight like losers because we believe we're losing something. It's the same things Peter learned in the garden. Remember they come to get Jesus? That They come to take Jesus away and what does Peter do? He, he pulls out a sword and slices the soldier's ear off. Again, if I'm telling the story, it's not an ear. It's through the heart. That's me. But so often we think like losers. 
And in that moment, Peter is thinking like losers. And he turns to Peter and says, what is wrong with you? You act like we're losing here. And he picks up the ear and he heals the soldier. And he says, Peter, that's how we fight. Because we win. And then he goes to the cross and guess what Peter is still doing? He's still running. He's still acting like a loser. He still thinks they're going to lose. Jesus is crucified. He's buried. He's raised back up. And he comes to Peter. And he says, Peter, that's how we, that's how we fight. With a cross and a resurrection. And you know Peter's response? What does Peter do? He's crucified upside down. He says, we fight with mercy. Because we win in the end, we can fight with mercy. And, and I wonder if you're here today, are you fighting with a sword or a spear? Are you fighting like a loser? When that adrenaline surge comes over you and you get scared, there's conflict, and you're scared to death that you're going to lose something. You're scared to death that somebody's going to see you as, as weak. You're fearful someone is going to get noticed and promoted. You're, you're scared another kid may get a better award than your kid. And that adrenaline surges in you. And you've you got to fight. You've got to say something. And you reach for gossip. And you reach for slander. And you begin to point out all of their flaws. All of the ways they fall short. They ain't as good as y'all think they are. I knew them back in high school. You won't believe the way they acted. Oh, you haven't seen the way that kid acts at home. He's a mess. He doesn't deserve that. And you know what? You're fighting like a loser. You're fighting like a loser in those moments. You're reaching for the sword. Uh, you, you, you're scared you may be proven wrong, that someone's way is going to be better than yours. And you get into those arguments and you just get louder and you just get louder and you just get louder. No, this is right. This is right. This is my opinion. And you get loud and you get loud until nobody wants to hear you talk anymore and you just win because you're the loudest. You're fighting like a loser. You're not fighting like somebody who will be raised from the dead one day. You're fighting like someone who is scared. And you're scared if you forgive somebody, you're just going to look weak. And some of you here today have been holding on for, to grudges for years and years and years and years. Because you're scared to lose the fight. You don't even remember what you're fighting about. And you're clinging to a grudge. And it's silly. And it's foolish. And it's not a display of someone who will rule and reign forever. You see what the gospel does to us is we're able to say, I have already been crucified. I have already been dressed up like a clown king and drugged through the streets of Jerusalem and beaten and left on a trash heap like an abused dog. That's already happened to me. I've already been crucified in Christ. What can you do to me? What can you say to me? What, what are you going to say to me that's going to hurt me? 
I've already been crucified in Christ. I've already been raised from the dead in Him. I've already seen my victory. I've already heard the last word. And the last word from Golgotha is, it is finished. And if I've heard that word, I can leave you on red to the glory of God. R-D, that's for the younger crowd. Text messaging. I don't have to get the last word. But there's a more vivid display of mercy that's going on in this text. You see, Israel's war camps were laid out like the tent of meeting. And at the center of the tent of meeting was the tent, the Holy of Holies. And only the priests could enter by, the blood, by blood of sacrifice and not be killed. Only the priests could go to the center of the camp. And here, the king's tent is at the center of Israel's camp. And and Saul is being guarded like he's the presence of God here. But God allows David to go all the way to the center of the camp. And we have a picture here of this rogue king who's given authority to enter into the presence of God and not be scathed. And this king, in the presence of God, keeps men like Saul alive there. And his name is Jesus. You see, Saul and Abner fall short of the glory That is needed to enter the presence of God. But guess what? David does too. If we know the end of the story. We know the kind of mercy that David shows Saul in that tent. He does not show a man named Uriah. And he has a man named Uriah killed so he can sleep with his wife. Bathsheba. So he can have her as his wife. There's no mercy in that, David. David falls short of the glory he points us to here. David is the one in the Psalms who's crying out for the mercy of God. David is the one who is pleading for God's faithfulness to be merciful to him. David is not the king we need in the story. David cannot enter into the literal presence of God. There's only one who can. And one day you will enter into the presence of God. You will be ushered in by another king. And if you are rewarded for your righteousness, you will be destroyed there. Because your sin says you don't deserve to be here. Your sin says what Abisha says. Spear him to death. Spear him to hell. And yet there is another king named Jesus who is thrust through with the wrath of God for you. And he speaks to you in the presence of God. And he says, only by my mercy can you be here. And covered in Jesus' righteousness, the Father's heart will never sink and say, now what? Not again. Covered in the blood of Jesus, there is a greater king who in mercy will say even to you, Touch not the Lord's anointed. He is covered in my righteousness. She is covered in my death and resurrection. Let's pray.